Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood and I write science fiction and fantasy. I used to be in the Navy, spent 20 years doing submarine operations, among other cool things. Learned to fly planes, learned to scuba dive, had a bunch of kids, saw the world, and I started writing fiction. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing my stories with you in the hope that you'll have fun, and also that you'll like my stuff and come back for more and maybe help brother out with buying a book or two. So uh, sit back, relax, I'm going to tell you a story. Hi friends, I'm Michael Kingswood. It's story time. A lot of good stuff happening in the Kingswood Devote this week, and you've already heard about them. At least the new short story. Got to pimp up the, the uh, Infinite Bard again. Wrote my eighth story in a row for The Great Challenge. I uh, don't think I actually told you about that one. It's eight weeks. Eight short stories down. The great challenge I'm running with Dean Winsley Smith. I have to get him into him every Sunday night by midnight. Two months down. Ten more to go for a total of 52 for the year, which started beginning of April. So, <laughs> not exactly the calendar year. But it's thing to go on to kick my butt to get the writing flowing in gear, and it's working well so far. And uh, so, yeah, just going to keep on continuing. Just like we're going to continue reading The Pericles Conspiracy right now for your listening pleasure. When last we left, Joe had reached her grand decision point. She realized she couldn't just let Malcolm get arrested or, or as she suspects, killed. So she managed to fight off Agent Stefano, took his gun, and ran to the rescue. Off to the races now. We'll see what happens next. The Pericles Conspiracy. Written by me. Read by me. And if you're still listening after all this time, you know I'm sorry, but clearly you don't mind it that much. Chapter 19. Into the Fire. Joe pushed a low-hanging branch out of her way and stepped into the clearing, her heart pounding in her chest an agent Stefano's plasma pistol in her right hand alongside her thigh. The scene in the clearing made her stop in surprised shock. Agent Calderon was on the ground, groaning through gritted teeth and grasping his left knee, which was scorched and blackened by what Joe assumed was a plasma shot. His pistol lay on the ground about three meters away from him, a kilometer away for all the good it would do him. Agent Moore stood in a shooter stance almost directly in front of Joe, her pistol held in both hands and trained on Malcolm and the third agent. Malcolm stood behind the third agent. Joe could see the metal bands of his handcuffs around his wrists, but the chain between them had been severed somehow. He had his left arm wrapped around the agent's neck, pinning the agent close to his body. In his right hand, he held a plasma pistol pointed at the agent's temple. Put down the weapon in Goobway. Agent Moore said, her tone crisp and professional, though it carried a hint of frustration as well. Malcolm shook his head and took a step back, dragging the agent with him. Back away, he shouted in return. Agent Moore showed no sign of complying. She moved forward in time with Malcolm, her pistol never wavering as she sighted in on him. Malcolm was almost a full head taller than the agent he held captive. Joe imagined it would not be hard for Agent Moore to shoot him in the head if she meant to. Malcolm called out, Put your gun down and back away. He was beginning to sound desperate. Joe saw Agent Moore flex her hands on the grip of her pistol and cock her head slightly. She was getting ready to fire. 
Before she realized what she was doing, Joe took two steps forward, out from beneath the canopy of branches and into the open, and raised the pistol she was holding, pointing it at Agent Moore's back. Do what he says, she ordered in her best captain tone. Agent Moore froze and glanced back at Joe. Malcolm's eyes widened in shock. Joe, what the hell do you think you're doing? Agent Moore said, her expression and tone growing harsh with sudden fury. The right thing, finally, Joe replied. She stepped forward into her right, keeping the pistol trained on Agent Moore. Put down your weapon and back away. The agent swallowed, her eyes flickering between Joe and Malcolm. She flexed her hands on her pistol again, and she swallowed. Have you gone mad? You're killing yourself. Do you know that? Joe shrugged and moved over to Malcolm's side, being careful to keep Agent Moore in her sights. As she walked, she put on her command face and said in her best captain voice, If I'm already dead, I guess I'll have no problem taking you with me. Put down the gun. Now. For a moment, Joe had the sinking feeling that she might actually have to follow through on the threat. It was easy enough to say it, but contemplating Ashley pulling the trigger, she was not sure she could actually do it. Apparently her doubt did not show on her face, because Agent Moore's expression changed from coolly in control to doubtful. She licked her lips and glanced to the side where Agent Calderon still lay in obvious agony. He was out of the fight, even if his weapon had been near to hand, then back toward Joe. Their eyes met, and Joe saw the doubt become fearful certainty. A few seconds passed, then ever so slowly, Agent Moore raised her hands and tossed her weapon off to the side. Good. Now turn around and get on your knees. As Agent Moore complied, Joe looked over at Malcolm. He looked haggard, and no wonder, after the last few moments. Joe did not want to look in the mirror herself right then. What the hell was she thinking? Malcolm gave her the briefest of smiles and said, This way, Joe. Moving as quickly as he could with the agent in his grasp, Malcolm backed away toward the trees on the far side of the open area. Joe followed, and in short order, they stood beneath the overhanging branches. Agent Moore had not moved, no doubt expecting a plasma shot in the back if she did. Now what? she asked. In response, Malcolm twisted his foot between the agent's legs and pushed forward, sending the man sprawling. Don't move, Malcolm ordered. Then he turned to Joe and said, let's go. Malcolm sprinted away. Joe hesitated only a heartbeat before running to join him. What made you change your mind? Joe gritted her teeth and clung to the handle on Malcolm's car door as he took a turn at a higher rate of speed than she would have preferred. As in their last meeting, he had parked not far outside of the parquet. This time, he did not bother with the blindfold or security walkthrough. They just hopped in, and he floored it. Tires squealed as the car skidded for a moment, then Malcolm righted it, and they sped away north down Bahia del Caracas. They passed a hospital on the right, then he turned the car hard to the right again, onto Ambato. Where are we going? Joe asked, not bothering to answer his question. We established a new safe house north of the city, he replied in clipped tones. If we can get on Highway 35, we should make it there relatively quickly. And that would be the reason Malcolm picked such a late hour for their meeting. It was not just some cliché cloak-and-dagger act, after all. A getaway in Quito's middle-of-the-day traffic would have been laughable, but now they just might make it, except... That's not going to happen, Joe said, a sinking feeling in the pit of her stomach that was caused by more than Malcolm's hard turn to the left onto Venezuela. Malcolm glanced at her and, seeing her expression, grinned and let off the accelerator. You're right, of course. It wouldn't do to get pulled over for speeding, would it? Joe shook her head. No, that's not what I meant. I... Ah, crap. Don't hit anything for a second. She unbuckled her seatbelt, then leaned forward and shrugged out of her jacket. 
Quickly checking that she had everything from its pockets, she rolled down her window and tossed the jacket out into the night. Malcolm raised one eyebrow. Bugged? Joe nodded. But that's not all. She rubbed at her shoulder and imagined she could feel the bump from the locator concealed there. They injected me with a locator device. Malcolm's other eyebrow rose and he glanced at the shoulder. Crap, he said, echoing Joe's words. Okay, I know a guy who can take care of it. His eyes flicked to the rearview display and then he frowned. If we can make it to him, they'll probably follow us at random, set up a few roadblocks. His frown deepened, and he turned right onto Jose Mejia. The intersection with Highway 35 lay ahead, but he did not seem to be relaxing at all. Joe swallowed despite the dryness in her mouth and tried to suppress the anxiety within her. They were not caught yet. There was a chance they could still get away. Wasn't there? We're not screwed, are we? Malcolm glanced at her. His frown lessened, and he shook his head. Not yet, but we'll have to move quickly. Keeping one hand on the wheel, Malcolm reached into his jacket pocket and pulled out a mobile communicator. He tapped the screen to life and made a selection. A few seconds later, the electronic beep which announced his call being answered sounded over the car's internal speakers, followed by a male voice. Robert, do you know what time it is? The man's accent marked him as being a local to the Kido area. His voice is deep and gravelly and it sounded sleepy and more than a little annoyed. I've got an emergency, Raoul. What else is new? The man on the other end of the line grumbled something unintelligible, then inhaled deeply. In her mind's eye, Joe imagined him sitting up, throwing his feet over the side of his bed and then rubbing his eyes as he woke up fully. Finally, he said, All right, what's up? I need an internal locator removed, right now. What? I'm serious, Raul. The man groaned softly. Robert, that's a tricky procedure. I need special tools, a lab. It's not just something I can throw together. Well, you're going to have to. They're after us, and we don't have a whole lot of time. I'll be at your place in ten minutes. What? Hell no, don't come here. The man inhaled mildly again. Meet me at the usual spot in twenty, okay? Alcum glanced at the review again and then nodded. All right, twenty minutes. The speakers went silent as the call ended. Joe looked at Malcolm in confusion. Robert? Malcolm chuckled. I don't advertise who I am very widely. Rule is a good man, but also a tad... He looked at her with a raised eyebrow. Shady, if you know what I mean. But if there's anyone who can get that bug out of you, it's him. That's a comfort. Well, it was not really. But Joe was committed now. Even if she was not sure she had done the right thing by siding with Malcolm, there was no going back. She was just going to have to trust him and his shady friend. Wonderful. She took a deep breath. Where are we meeting him? In the short-term parking lot at the airport. Malcolm must have noticed the confused look on her face because he chuckled and continued, It's controlled airspace, so it's not likely we'll be pursued or observed by aerial units. And there's always a lot of people coming and going, even at this hour. He winked at her. Makes it easy to blend in. Ah, that makes sense, I suppose. The airport was a bit over 20 kilometers away, past the line of peaks to the east of the city. Throughout the drive, Joe expected to see the flashing blue lights of police cars in the rear view or blocking the highway ahead but there were none. As Malcolm pulled off the highway, Joe managed to relax a little bit. Maybe Agent Moore had been so delayed by Calderon into Stefano's wounds that she decided to wait. More likely not, though. Thinking about it, Joe decided she would not likely use the local police unless she had to. A public spectacle was the last thing the agency would want, so there would likely be no flashing lights and squad cars. But they did want the rest of Becky's cell, and Joe had the locator in her shoulder. Maybe Agent Moore would wait after all, hoping Joe and Malcolm would lead them to the rest of his companions before they got someone to remove the locator. 
Joe dismissed that thought. Agent Moore never struck her as particularly clever, but she was not a complete idiot. She would have to know that Joe would try to get the locator out first thing, which meant the agents were on the way, and Joe would likely not see them until they were on her. So much for relaxing. Chapter 20. Taking Flight In spite of the hour, the short-term parking lot at Quito International Airport was still about a third full. The last flights would not depart or arrive for another hour or so. That was some comfort. They would stand out completely in an empty parking lot. Malcolm drove through the swing-arm gate and into the lot. Sitting in the passenger seat, Joe looked over at the terminal and, for a moment, the irony of the airport naming convention struck her. It's not like there were still nation-states to speak of, just the coalition itself and its member states, then the various provinces and localities beneath them. Yet still, people called some airports international and some regional. It was funny, now that she stopped to think about it, just like how starfarers used nautical terminology on board ship. Joe supposed it was comforting, or something, to harken back to old traditions like that, but still, it was funny. Look for a yellow van, Malcolm said, bringing Joe back to the present. He turned down the first row of parked cars and drove slowly down it, peering side to side intently. Joe shook herself back to alertness. This was no time for daydreaming, or night dreaming, she smirked to herself as she glanced at the car's chronometer. They traversed the parking lot twice without spotting the van. Malcolm frowned and pulled into a spot near the exit gates and turned off the car's lights. He left the engine running, though. I guess we wait, Joe said. This guy is reliable, right? Malcolm half shrugged. He's not the most punctual person ever, but he knows his stuff and is good in a pinch. Joe turned to look at the parking lot entrance, an anxious knot began to grow in her belly. This was bad. They needed to keep moving, not sit around where Agent Moore and her comrades could catch up to them. But moving would not do much good unless they removed the locator. Crap. Joe found herself wringing her hands as the minutes ticked by, no matter how many times she forced herself to stop. Finally, a yellow van pulled up to the entrance gate. She perked up and nudged Malcolm, who followed her gaze to the van and nodded. That's him, Malcolm said. The van meandered around the parking lot for a few moments, almost as though the driver could not decide where to park. Finally, it pulled into the space next to them. The driver did not get out. Malcolm looked at Joe seriously. All set, he asked. She took a deep breath and nodded. Malcolm returned the nod and turned off the car's engine. Make sure you have everything, he said. We may have to leave here in a hurry. Then he opened the car door and stepped out. Joe did a quick check of her belongings. She did not have much, just her handbag and the weapons she took from the agents of the parquet. Hardly enough to make it for very long on the run, but there was not much choice, was there? Shaking her head, she got out of the car. Malcolm stood at the passenger side door of the van. The window was rolled down and Joe could not see inside from her angle. Malcolm nodded in response to something she did not hear and the side door of the rear of the van slid open. The inside of the van was set up like a lab, a first aid station, and a communication center all rolled into one. Surprise made her not notice the man who stepped back from the driver's seat until he spoke. You going to introduce me, Robert? The man, Raoul no doubt, is short and slender, with thin limbs and a pencil neck that clashed with his unexpectedly broad shoulders. He kept his black hair tied into a ponytail at the nape of his neck and had a short beard on his face. He wore jeans and a t-shirt depicting the logo for a band that Joe had never heard of, and sandals on his feet. His skin was well tanned, though he looked pale compared to Malcolm, and his eyes were dark behind wire-rimmed spectacles. Joe was surprised by that. Glasses were almost unheard of these days, with the ease of corrective surgery, or implants, 
But then, a person without a database implant was a rarity too, so who was Joe to judge? Malcolm gestured toward the man in the van and said, Joe, meet Raul Ramirez, a legend in his own mind. Raul made a sound that was halfway between a snort and a chuckle and reached out with his right hand toward Joe. She shook it and was pleased to find he had a strong, confident grip. She smiled in a manner that she hoped was friendly and said, Nice to meet you. Raul returned the smile with a broad grin. The pleasure is mine, Joe. Releasing her hand, he looked from Joe to Malcolm and rubbed his hands together. Well, if you'll join me inside, we can get down to business. They stepped into the van and Raoul tapped the control panel. The door slid shut silently, cutting out the outside world. Once the door was closed, Raoul looked Joe over again. I assume you have the locator, no? Joe nodded and pointed at the meter for his shoulder. Raoul nodded. Subcutaneous injection, huh? He looked back at Malcolm. How much time do you have? Malcolm spread his hands in a gesture of ignorance. No idea. They could be coming around the corner any minute, for all we know. Raoul shook his head and gestured toward the racks of communication gear in the front of the van's cargo area. No one's mentioned you on the police bands. And they won't, Malcolm replied. It's an NSA operation. Hijo de puta, Raoul muttered. More loudly, he said, that's going to cost you double. Malcolm scowled and opened his mouth, no doubt to protest, but Raoul beat him to it. Double, Robert, or you can get the fuck out of here right now. I don't need to spend any more time in the lockup. Malcolm and Raoul traded stares for a brief moment. Then Malcolm nodded. Raoul smiled again. All right, Robert, drive the van. Stay on the main roads where there's still traffic. Malcolm nodded, moved up to the driver's seat. Raoul turned back to Joe. Have a seat and roll up your sleeve. This should just take a minute. As Joe moved to the bench at the very rear of the van, she felt the engine start up and the vehicle begin to move. Then she lost her balance and fell onto the bench with a thud as Malcolm hit the brakes a little too hard. Hey, she shouted. Sorry, brakes are tighter than I'm used to, came the reply from the front. Raoul shook his head and smirked. Many men have trouble with control when it's tighter than normal. Am I right? He winked at her and raised his eyebrows in a lecherous manner. Joe glowered and almost smacked him, but thought better of it before doing so. He must have realized it, though, because his smirk faded quickly, replaced by a wary, almost disappointed expression. Let's just get on with it, Raoul, she said, and rolled up her sleeve until the fabric bunched up around the top of her shoulder and armpit. The van moved forward again as Raoul pulled a drawer of various tools out from a bin in the wall. He fished around inside for a moment, then emerged with a portable MRI and what looked like a pair of pincers. Joe recognized the MRI unit from the medical supplies on board ship. They were really expensive, more than she would earn in a run from Seoul to Gliza and back. Where the hell did Raoul get it? He did not look like the type to be rolling in money. Joe almost asked, but realized she probably did not want to know. All right, hold still for a moment, Raoul said. He attached the clamps on the MRI to either side of the meat in her shoulder, then spent a brief moment adjusting some of the machine's settings. After a moment, he nodded to himself and tapped the control panel. The MRI began to hum. In Joe's experience, portable MRIs did not require much time to warm up, but this one seemed to take forever. Although she was forced to admit it could have been her nerves that made it seem to take as long as it did. Finally, the unit made a soft beeping sound as Raoul tapped the control pad again. A display built into the wall of the van flashed to life, revealing a false color image of the inside of Joe's shoulder. She blinked, fascinated, and leaned forward to see better. She had seen MRI readouts before, but never before one of her own body. It was a very different experience. Ah, there's the little bugger, Raoul said in a slow, near purr of satisfaction, and pointed to the lower left quadrant of the scan. Even with his direction, Joe could not find the locator for a long moment. When she finally did, she was underwhelmed. That's it? she said incredulously. The thing could not have been more than two millimeters long, maybe three. Raoul nodded. 
does not have to be large, gets its power from the electrical potential within your body, and only transmits when queried from elsewhere. When it transmits, the feds triangulate its position using the web nodes nearby. Interesting, but right then Joe could have cared less how the thing worked. Get it out already, she wanted to shout. Instead, she just nodded. Now, Raoul said as he began adjusting his pincher tool, if I had more time to prepare, I would have a good anesthetic ready. He looked up from his tool with an apologetic expression. As it is, I'm afraid this may hurt a little. Oh, great. Joe gritted her teeth and nodded again. Might as well get on with it. Raoul made one last adjustment on his pinchers, then hefted them and leaned forward. He paused for a moment, studying the MRI display again. Then he nodded to himself and moved the pinchers in toward Joe's shoulder. A sudden lurch sent Raoul stumbling forward onto Joe. They both slid across the bench into the van's wall with a painful thump, followed by a metallic rattle as the MRI unit became dislodged from her shoulder and fell to the floor. The MRI display went black. What the hell, Robert? Raoul shouted as he and Joe extricated themselves from each other. Malcolm's voice was strained as he replied, I think they've found us. Son of a bitch, Joe and Raoul said in unison. Oh my goodness, Kingswood, you're not about to write us a car chase, are you? Why, yes, yes I am. And you better come back for it, because it's a good car chase. But that'll be next week. Next week, we'll get into chapter 21 and probably 22 of the Pericles Conspiracy, and our car chase to your heart's delight, see how they get away. If they do, maybe they'll all get killed. You don't know, unless you come and listen to the podcast. Or watch the video. Or... You could buy the book. Yeah, the book's for sale. And it's been out for a couple of years now, so you can easily go get it. But get it from me, because I make most money that way. Go to michaelkingswood.com and click on the bookstore. Or go to ssnstorydillon.com. That'll take you directly there. If you have to buy through Amazon or Kobo, I won't yell at you for it. But I will be disappointed. Not really. But hey, come by, become a newsletter subscriber, find out when other new releases are coming out. I will, just like uh, the My Bleeding Heart release I told you about, I will tell them about here on the videos and podcasts going into the future. But, uh, you know, newsletters, uh, the other way, good way to learn about things. And you also get special deals there that you won't get elsewhere. Other ways to get special deals is become a supporting patron on my website. Well, everybody else uses Patreon. I don't because I don't trust them because they are political and have kicked people off of their site for expressing views that they don't agree with. And I don't deal with political institutions. So I set up my own membership subscriptions service on my site so you can go and become a supporting member. Similar kind of deal. A few bucks a month helps out. And I will have posts and stuff posted on the, on the blog that only members can get into where I will have, you know, free giveaways or nice little share extra thoughts or, you know, whatever. Whatever. What I have planned to do is I'm going to be described on the, the webs, webs, uh, web page, Jesus, the web page on my site that uh, describes the program. But go there, sign up. It's all good. We'll have fun together. Or just come back here next week and we'll continue reading it. Up to you. Um, but hey, hopefully you uh, have a good rest of the week. Hey, don't forget to go check out my uh, novella, What Lurks, what Lurks Between. I'm giving that away for free over on Book Funnel through the Gritty Sci-Fi Fantasy Reads promotion giveaway to get people to sign up for my newsletter. <laughs> As if you didn't have enough reason to do that. But the link will be in the show notes for that as well. But anyway, that's all I got. 
Talk to you next week. Until then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. You can find me online at michaelkingswood.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. My web store is ssnstorytelling.com, where you can find all my books in your favorite formats. Purchasing through the web store nets me the most profit, but if you prefer, I'm also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and all the other usual e-tailers. If you want to learn about new releases, sign up for my mailing list through the contact form at my website. I guarantee not to spam you, only send an email when I have some news to share. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyright of Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music, copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved. <laughs>